Hey everyone, Mikey here, and thank you for joining me for another episode. Real quick, just a couple of announcements before I get to introducing the guest for today's show. Climb4 is gearing up for another fundraiser. We are so very grateful that you guys have helped see us through our first year, and we absolutely could not have done it without you. Last year's fundraiser was amazing. Seeing everyone come out and join us for something we had no clue we'd even get off the ground. I just don't have the words for it. Other than to say the credit goes to Carmen, to Leslie, to our volunteers and all of you. So thank you. We're still hammering out the details for this next event, but what I do know is we'll plan on hosting the event online due to the current situation with COVID-19. And we'll plan on hosting this event around July or August timeframe. And we have new t-shirts and they're amazing. What makes this year's design particularly meaningful is that the design was a combined effort. Drafted by Leslie while she was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, raising awareness for veteran suicides, and touched up by a very good friend of ours who is still active duty. This was well before Climb 4 even existed. It's really cool to see it come back full circle. And now, the main attraction. I'll start with this. A life of contrast. At 17 years old, Melissa Mattis was wrapping up senior year, reaching that all-too-familiar transition into the next stage of her life get a job, go to school. Well, she had something else in mind. Actually, she wanted something 180 degrees out from what she currently knew to be the status quo. So, she did what every All-American varsity cheerleader, high school beauty pageant winner did. She joined the Marines. The journey leading up to this decision found its roots in a pre-9-11 society and was undeterred in the aftermath of the tragedies that we faced as a country on that day. Nine days in the aftermath, to be exact. She met her commitment head-on and eventually found herself on a deployment to Iraq. After 10 years of honorable service in the United States Marine Corps, she felt it was time to move on. And what did she move on to? Well, that is exactly what this podcast is about. So please, listen in and join me on welcoming the one and only Mel Master Flash, a.k.a. Melissa Mattis, to the Climb Forward podcast. An estimated 22 veterans a day commit suicide. It's a tragic loss, it's a life not fully lived, and a story untold. Climb Forward takes it upon ourselves to have a positive impact on the lives of these veterans by enabling them to heal in the great outdoors, helping them to find the courage to fight, the courage to persevere, and to face a new life with new challenges. They're not alone. Life is a mountain, and the journey is a climb. And what do you climb for? All right, we're good. How's your weekend been? Oh, it's been great. Uh, it's not like there's a whole lot to do, but that's kind of nice. Right, yeah, the whole COVID thing kind of has everything shut down. You were in uh, Maryland recently? I was. I was out in Salisbury, Maryland. Okay, what were you doing there? Just visiting some friends. Uh, it's just kind of uh, a lot of farmland out there, so um, sometimes it's nice to disconnect so you can reconnect, you know? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, very much so. So I was reading through your story on your Instagram, the link that you have on your Instagram. And there's really so much about your story that I really resonate with, um, particularly the part about so when veterans get out and kind of missing that, that purpose. You know, when you're in the Marines, you are a Marine. And when I was in the Navy, I was doing whatever I was in the Navy. So we get out of that and we kind of lose that. So how did you what, – what made you choose Marines to begin with? Oh, that's really interesting. I actually spoke with every branch because 
benefit-wise, they all provide pretty much the same thing. You know, education benefits, you know, the, the, the seeking adventure, whatever it is that you're looking for, they all provide that. So to give you a little bit of, a, I guess, insight to my 17-year-old logic, I was an All-American varsity cheerleader and also had won a beauty pageant. So I had, <laughs> I thought, Marine Corps would be the biggest contrast to what that, what I had, you know, been portrayed as in high school. Exactly. So it was the biggest contrast, and I was like, you know what, I want, I guess basically the biggest challenge. So what, what made you go for that contrast? Because not a lot of people go for that. You know, they kind of, they have like a winning life, right? Like things are going well in high school, they kind of follow the worn-out path, maybe go to college, get a job, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what is it about that contrast and that challenge that really spoke to you? I think it's, you know, I don't know if it's everybody's like this, but I just, that seeking that uh, desire to just prove, prove it to myself, I guess, at the end of the day, but just basically the world that, I can do anything, and that sounds kind of cliche, kind of trite, but it was, that's really what it was. It was, mm-hmm. you know, I want to do what's most unexpected. Right. Yeah, something unconventional. So what did you, what did you feel like you had to prove? You know, at that time, I have no idea. Again, it was 17-year-old logic, but right. another place, when I actually, I talked to all the, the branches, and I knew that I was going to go to the military, so that was not a question about if. Right. One. So my my mother, she worked third shift at a Waffle House, and okay. the time that we she was going to go sign for my you know release to the military to go into the debt program because I was a senior in high school, it was I don't know I want to say it was like the first week in September of 2001. And she had worked a double, and she's like, hey, I cannot, I can't go meet your recruiters today. Can we reschedule for next week? And uh, so we rescheduled, and uh, September 11th happened in 2001. Right. And she said, you know, absolutely not. You're not going to go. And uh, there's no questions. I'm not going to sign these papers. So I was like, okay, well, I turn 18 in six months, so either you support me and you sign these papers now, or I do it myself in six months. And I resent you. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. One way or another, it's going to happen. Right. Either way, it's happening. Either you support me or you don't. So, September 20th, 2001, my papers were signed and enlisted. It took about wow. a week and a half of fighting. <laughs> wow. That's that's And you were 17 years old. I was. Yeah. Wow. So, what was that like? What was that like? 17 years old. You know what you wanted to do, and you go into it. Like, what was it like? What was boot camp like? What was the whole experience like going into that? I can't say that my experience going into to boot camp was any different than any other uh, recruit, especially, you know, the female Marine were completely segregated. So I can't say that my experience is that much different than theirs. Uh, but it was definitely eye-opening with how diverse it was. So I grew up in this really small town in Arkansas. I think I graduated I don't know, maybe it was like 50, 60 people. I know that there were, I think there were more people in my graduating boot camp class than there were in right. my school class. Um, and there aren't many female Marines, so that's really saying how small my high school class was. Right, of course. 
but it was really the diversity because it was just so, so amazing to me to meet, you know, these other young women from, you know, I remember one from Baltimore and from L. I remember there was one, she was in her late 20s. She'd actually had a huge waiver, and she was uh, a Disney princess at Disney World and then joined the Marines. So we huh. all had these completely diverse backgrounds, but the best thing is that boot camp was the great equalizer. No one gave a shit where you were from. All got treated like crap. Which of course. Is really- <laughs> yeah, yeah, nature of the beast. Nobody gets, nobody gets special treatment. <laughs> exactly. Wow. So, okay, so you're, you're in Marine boot camp, and you're going through the deal. So why did you want to join the Marines? Was there a job that you had in mind? Uh, yeah, I wanted something technical. I knew I wanted something, uh, you know, also, I guess, a contrast to, to being a, a beauty queen and cheerleader type of thing. But I wanted to do something very technical. And um, I took my ASVAB. I did well in the ASVAB, and I was able to get into a uh, aviation electronics program. So I went through through school and based electronics, and I went through aviation electronics, and then I was sent off to the platform, to the aircraft platform that I would be working on. Mm. Which so, platform did you end up getting? I was on Huey's and Cobra's, so a small okay. light helicopter. And now they're Yankees and Zulus. Gotcha. Yeah, they always had to make that transition. I did the same thing. I started off in avionics, uh, working on 60 Bravos in North Island uh, for the first two years that I was in the Navy. Oh, very nice. Okay, then you, yeah, you know what that's, what that's like. So, it's, And it was a long school as well. Now, did you go through Pensacola for that? I did, yes. The first okay. Was... Gotcha. So how long were you working on helicopters? I did that about five years. And during that time, I deployed to Iraq. Okay. Where in yeah. Iraq did you go to? I was in Al-Takadam, and that's right between Fallujah and Ramadi. So I know a lot of people are familiar with the, with Fallujah, so it was right uh, near there. Right. How was that? How was that first deployment? It was a really kinetic time. <laughs> so yeah, for it sure. Was, it was in 2004, so it was during OIF2, so during the second push, I suppose. And I was on the flight line the, the whole time, so I didn't. Uh, I only had to leave the base one time. And so, I mean, I definitely had that, uh, you know, that was – I was very fortunate to to be able to be on a base uh, that for pretty much the duration of my deployment. Uh, but it was uh, it was definitely very I don't know if interesting is, is the word because it was such a, a growing experience because I was 20 years old. I actually turned 21 while I was there, and there aren't many 20 year olds besides you know those in the military going into a deployment situation who have to decide who they want their pallbearers to be. Right. When they go for them. So that's a really unique experience for a 20-year-old as opposed to other 20-year-olds who are trying to figure out where they're going to go for their spring break destination. Yeah, for sure. It's a totally different perspective. So for what Melanie's talking about is before we deploy, you know, if you're going to a combat zone or even just on deployment, what we would have to do is you'd pick out everything from – you know, what song you want playing at your funeral, who you want, uh, like she said, carrying your casket, like the whole thing. So right before you head out the door, you know, you kind of have that mindset of this is what could happen if I don't make it back. And it's it's a very, like you said, unique experience to kind of be like, hmm, you know, what, what would I want 
at my funeral when all this stuff goes down. So not very many people get to fill that out. Uh, it's really interesting you bring that up. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's challenging at such a young age because you feel like, you know, you know everything, you're on top of the world, especially, and I don't know if it was the same mindset in the Navy, but I know in the Marine Corps you just kind of had this uh, this immortal type feeling like I'm invincible I am amazing I'm so strong and then it's like this fatalistic thing that you have to go through so it's like okay like this is this shit just got real exactly (laughs) yeah for sure when you were overseas um did anything go down I mean it sounds like there's a lot of stuff going down right but anything that affected you anything that you experienced or heard about well we did get hit with mortars a, a few times. Um, actually, it was quite a bit. I'd say like every three or four days, which for some, that's not a lot. Uh, but since I had nothing to compare that to, relatively speaking, that was a, that was crazy for me. And, you know, anybody else for their first deployment. Uh, but it was, I'd say for the most part, I mean, we had tents. We had running water most of the time. We had cots in our tents. So also, relatively speaking, we had it pretty darn good. Yeah, that's, uh, it sounds like a pretty decent setup. I mean, the mortars aside, you know, that is kind of a unique, unique experience. Um, I never had to deal with that, but I had a lot of friends before I even went in and kind of getting accustomed to this notion that every once in a while there's going to be kind of that hissing, whistling sound and then a massive explosion. So okay. did any, any of that ever uh, kind of get close to you? We had some, I remember there was one time that they were, it, it sounded like they were walking them in. It just sounded like they kept getting closer and closer. And we had all put on our gear. We were sitting in, in our tents, kind of hunkered down. And as they were getting closer and closer, me and one of my friends, we looked at each other. And every time there was a boom, we'd say, shakalaka, shakalaka. <laughs> <laughs> What are you going to do? It's like we're not going to sit here and be like, oh, my gosh, hold my hand. Let's cry together. And it's just like, hey, it is what it is. And we're, like, kind of dancing around the tent and just like, if this is how we go, this is this is how we go. Exactly. Um, which is, I guess, really uh, <laughs> really morbid because you might tell that the people who don't have that military experience or anything that's similar to that, they're just like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> Funny, come on, it's funny. Yeah, doesn't everybody do that? <laughs> Life or death situation. So how long were you deployed direct for? It was uh, just shy of eight months. So we got there in August of '04 and came back April of '05. So just around eight months. Okay. What was it like coming back from that? So you have this experience in your background. You've you've faced all this stuff. You know, what was anything different? What was it like coming back to civilian life? It was so surreal. And even though, you know, I've shared some experiences with other people who had a much different job and have been deployed over there. So even though our experiences differed, it seemed like coming back, it was all this this really uh, surreal transitioning period when you came back. You know, whether it was driving or just regular social interactions, it's just like, oh, there's things are changing now. Because before, it's kind of a Groundhog Day situation, you know. And you come back, and it's like, okay, like, I have this plethora of decisions I have to make to get throughout my day, whereas before it was just pretty straightforward, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so that was just an interesting transition, and, and I know that, you know, I dealt with a little bit of, uh, I guess, like, culture shock, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I had a deeper appreciation. I was stationed in California. I had a much deeper appreciation for California coming back. Because before I left, 
coming from Arkansas, a little podunk Arkansas, and going to California, I was terrified of the big highways. I, uh, it was just, just such a crazy big place. And so when I got back, I was, I just really appreciated it. I was like, I want to learn how to surf. I want to go, you know, learn how to snowboard. I want to learn how to do all the things. So with, with that, with, you know, a little bit of, uh, I don't know if depression is the right word. I guess just kind of a mental reset. I had a, a deeper desire to actually like appreciate it. Yeah, so it's like you want to get out into the world more because being kind of on lockdown, you know, that's kind of how deployments were for us is you have, you know, the same route that you walk every day, same people that you see every day with, you know, an added bonus of who knows what could happen. And then coming back to the United States and kind of being like, okay, like I can do anything I want. Mm-hmm. And what, what of that did you actually get into? So, like, you come back and you're like, I want to surf, I want to snowboard. Did you actually throw yourself into that or how did that work out? All the things, yeah. I yeah, I learned okay. not well, so I surfing is really really hard for those who can do it and do it well. That's amazing. amazing um, I still, yeah. yeah, I still enjoy surfing. I'm just not good, and I'm okay with that. And um, but I did get into snowboarding. I still try to get out once at least once a season. And then uh, I got into other board sports as well. Just kind of you know pushed off into wakeboarding and skateboarding and you know using an indoor board and just anything with a board. I'm I'm all about it. Right. Nice. Yeah, I spent uh, 10 years in California, never surfed once. Not Is that – Yeah, the whole time. It's ironic because I look like a surfer. People are like, dude, you're from California? You do. Like, no, I'm from, I'm from Arkansas, actually. Oh, that's right. That's, you know what? Leslie told me that. So what? which part of Arkansas? So Fort Smith. Do you know where that is? Yes, I'm from uh, Fayetteville area, so yeah. Oh, I sure. know exactly where Fayetteville is. I went to school there for a little bit. Okay, yeah. Oh, who picks who? Yeah, so you, you, you understand. If you were in California for 10 years, then maybe you can relate to that culture shock a little bit. That's, well, so here's the thing is I was born in Arkansas, but I grew up in Texas. So for the most okay. part, I, I call Texas home. Um, I've still got some family in Arkansas, and, you know, that'd be like the main reason I go back. But, you know, I, I never really say I'm from Arkansas. I just never really spent much time there. Okay, yeah. Well, that's fair. You know, you're, yeah. if you're born in Texas, then that would be – home, I suppose. Yeah, but a lot of Arkansas, I can see, you know, coming from that to California is such a contrast. And ironically, like, growing up, I always wanted to go to California. So ended up joining the military, getting stationed there, and, and not a bad place. Where were you stationed in California? I was in Kent Pendleton. Okay, Pendleton. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Cool. So coming back from first deployment, kind of dealing with all this, you know, surreal reality, did you have another deployment after that? No, actually... Uh, as my unit was getting ready to deploy again, I went to a training squadron because I was in this in-between of whether I wasn't sure if I wanted to enlist. I was looking at doing embassy duty, and um, I actually went on a snowboarding trip, and I met some people from Colorado, and they were just the coolest people. I was like, you know what? I want to go to Colorado. So I went and talked to my career planner. I said, what's the – what's the, the, the likelihood that I would be able to get stationed in Colorado? They're like, well, we have this, this e-billet, like a support billet for a recruiting station in Denver. I'm like, okay, let's make it happen. I will re-enlist if I can get that. So I re-enlisted to do a support billet in Denver, Colorado, and uh, that's where I went next. And according to your profile, you won billet of the year. What is that about? Yeah, it was a, a billet of the year. A so, billet I'm sorry. Of the year. Yeah, a billet of the year. So, um 
like alpha, so a billet is the support billet. And it was, you know, just for, you know, supporting the recruiters, it was basically by, by vote. They, they voted every year who gave them the most support, or I'm not sure what metrics they used to determine that. Right. Um, but I do remember that it was not unanimous. And I was like, okay, who did not vote for me so I can ostracize them? So. <laughs> sure, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly my thought. So after that, so that was your last little bit. Uh, you ended up in Denver, Colorado, and then it was time to get out. And that's when you start talking about the identity crisis. And I think that's what a lot of veterans can really relate to. Uh, can you talk about that, what it was like to kind of separate from the Marines? Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, after Denver, I went to Quantico, Virginia. So I did a full 10 years. But, yeah, I did experience that after I got out there in, in Quantico. And I spent 10 years of my life. It was, at the time, a third of my life as a Marine. And if anybody asked me, you know, hey, what do you do? It was a very common question, you know, what do you do? And it was never what I did. It was never what my job was. It was, I'm a Marine. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. It's who I am. And it was such an integral part of my being. So whenever I got out, whenever I separated, I was like, well, who am I? So I was a full-time student, but that just didn't really pack the same punch when it's like, hey, what do you do? I'm a student. Mm-hmm. Still noble. <laughs> Still a noble right, yeah, exactly. What did you go to school for? I got my undergrad in aeronautical sciences. Okay. Yeah, that sounds pretty technical. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even, I can barely even pronounce that. Yeah, definitely on trend with what I was doing in the first five years uh, while I was in. So, um, but yeah, that was uh, just I didn't even as a student, and I'm sure a lot of veterans who decide to go to school afterwards or whatever it is that they decide to do, it's certainly not going to be that same camaraderie and cohesion that you had while you were in, and. You know, because I struggled with that, I actually, you know, like most veterans, became, you know, depressed. Um, I didn't have that, that outlet, that family, so to speak. And mm-hmm. uh, I actually had applied for a nearby town uh, to be a police officer. I was like, you know, here, I'll get an opportunity to be, to wear a uniform again, to have that that cohesion and that camaraderie, similar to what I had in the military, I could use the skills that I learned. And, you know, I was working with people that I would quite literally take a bullet for. So definitely that camaraderie was there. So that was, I don't think that's an uncommon thing for people uh, coming out of the military to do, but I, I that's uh, what I chosen to do, and it helped with my identity crisis, so to speak, as I was uh, completing my, my undergrad. Yeah, so it, it definitely makes it easier having the military background to go into something like law enforcement. And I'm with you, like, I don't know how common that is, but, I mean, it's still pretty interesting all the same. How long were you a police officer for? Only a year, actually. I did not do it very long at all. Okay. Why is that? Well, there was a number of cases, well, a handful of cases that I worked and where I just I couldn't quite compartmentalize. So coming out of the Marines, I was like, you know, I'm tough, I can do anything, and, you know, of course I can be a police officer. But it was such a different human element. When you're going into a call or a case and these people call you because they need your presence, but it's certainly not because they want you there. It's because it's potentially the worst day of their life. Yeah. And 
it was hard for me to separate that. And I don't find it to be a weakness, but I think that maybe my heart was just a little too soft for it because I just couldn't separate. There were, you know, some cases that I worked where I would cry for, for days afterwards. And, you know, just to be clear, mama didn't raise no bitch, but it was tough. It was really tough. And I, uh, my last call, my very last night before I had resigned, and I had no idea I was going to resign this night. This was not planned, but I had ran into a shooting. And I was like, you know what, I spent a decade <laughs> in the Marines, and I have, I'm finishing up my undergrad in aeronautical sciences. I think I can do a job where my adversaries don't want to kill me. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, definitely an option, for sure. <laughs> So that was a, kind of the, the pivotal moment for me to make a serious career change. <laughs> well, you, yeah, absolutely. No better, no better time than that. Uh, you mentioned that it's kind of like I don't know if it's a weakness, or you said I don't think it's a weakness. I don't think it is either. You know, I think we we respond to things the way we do, and you know, it's hard to be honest with it, about that. Um, I know for me, it, it took a while to even admit that. Yeah, maybe I've got some issues related to kind of what I went through in the military. So it's it's a it's a big hurdle. All in all, you know, you've, you've been through so much. You did 10 years in the Marines, and then you're trying to have something with camaraderie and find that purpose, and then you feel like, oh, man, like I'm kind of in over my head. What did you What did you do after that? So I actually, one of my, my buddies that I was in, the, in Iraq with, when he got out, he started working with this organization or uh, basically like a pseudo-headhunting agency, and they helped place military veterans in technical jobs. So I reached out to him and I'm like, hey, listen, I'm finishing my degree. Um, I'm ready to go full vigilante on all these crazy people. So what can we do to, to help me out and get me placed in something that's a little bit more, um, you know, in the career trajectory I'd like to take? And so he's like, okay, hey, we'll help you out. We'll help you with your, your resume. He's like, we'll, get, we'll see what we can do to get you a couple interviews. He goes, we can get you the interviews, but it's up to you to get the job. Um, so he got me, you know, taken care of, got my foot in the door for some interviews, and I ended up getting with the company that I'm with now. And I work in energy and engineering uh, com- and company now. It's a big global company, uh, which is which is really great. It's been quite the, I can't say like a ladder of success. It's been more of like an obstacle course. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but I, that's what I'm doing now. Well, you mentioned competing against degreed electrical engineers uh, that were more qualified for the position. So, you know, what what was that process like? What's it like to kind of come into that deal and to be like, did you feel like an imposter? Did you feel like you had something to prove still? Like, what was your mindset? You know, that's that's a really great question because I had no idea who I was going up against. I knew that they were looking for, you know, people with a technical background. That was kind of the premise of this this, uh, pseudo-headhunting agency. But I had no idea that the requirement was an electrical engineer. Um, so when I went through the process, and it was like a three-part interview process over the course of, I think it was like about a month or so, and when I got the job, I was working with my, at the time, he became my mentor, and she told me, like, straight out, he said, hey, you're not the most qualified for this, but we like you the most, so we're going to teach you what we want you to know, and uh, I was like, okay, great, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome, though, because, like, a lot of it has to do with kind of the people you meet and, and whether or not they like you. I think a lot of people refer to it as, you know, the good old boys club, but the reality of the situation is 
it's not so much what the experiences that you have bringing into it. It's kind of how you relate to other people. And it sounds like you've always been able to relate to other people pretty well. You know, I do have, I, I do feel like I, on some level, I'm able to connect or if I can't directly relate, then I can at least try to pull some parallel or some experience where I can either share or try to level with somebody. So I think that that does, that has helped me because uh, there's actually, I want to share this with you. For sure. Uh, I always say, for one, that your network is your net worth, for sure, without a doubt. Mm. It's, there was this study done by, by Harvard years ago, and they followed a number of people over several years. And I don't know what metrics they used to determine this, but they had concluded that people with a higher relational IQ were more successful than people with a higher intellectual IQ. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you talked about the emotional intelligence, and it's very recent that that's really become something on the forefront, is actually being able to relate to other people, understand and interpret people's emotions. It's too easy for veterans to get out and be like, I just can't associate with civilians. Like, I just don't get it. They're too lazy, this, that, and the other. But uh, to be able to bring that to the forefront and to incorporate these skills with other people and a variety of people, it's absolutely tantamount. Did you have any troubles relating to certain people? Like, was there a way for you to kind of navigate that terrain? You know, absolutely. Shortly after I transitioned to the full civilian side, so outside of law enforcement, got with the company, you know, corporate America that I'm with now, there was definitely some some transitioning challenges. So, especially with communication style, (laughs) which uh, uh, I've actually talked to some other veterans who are now working in the civilian world, and they're like, yes, our our communication style isn't always welcome. <laughs> it's not always received well because typically we're very uh, – and I'm not trying to speak collectively for all veterans, but generally speaking, very expressed, very candid, very, hey, uh, we have, you know, got to get shit done. And time is of the essence, so move with the purpose, basically. So it's uh, – Unfortunately, not all civilians work like that, and I don't think it's a matter of laziness. I think it's just uh, their approach to certain challenges. <laughs> oh yeah, very much so. Like I don't, I don't mean to throw laziness out there. You know, it's something I've observed, and some of them are actually, a lot of them are very hardworking. They're just good people. But yeah, we're very direct. Like nobody's worried about feelings. Um, our eval, my eval, wasn't depending on, you know, how nice I was to somebody. It's like, what did I get done? So we have a timeline. We've got constraints. It's like we, we've got shit to do, so let's let's get going. So now navigating that with people in the civilian world, it's like, okay, I need to take a step back and, and really learn, like, how to interact with people. Um, did you go to any professional development courses, or do you, you just kind of have that coming into the position? No, I, actually, I don't think I had any, any professional development courses, uh, not any formal ones. So I think it was – a lot of trial and error, and I had I was really fortunate that the first boss that I had, he was a VMI grad, so there's a lot of you know military influence for the Virginia Military uh, Institute, the VMI College, and his wife is actually a retired Army combat medic, and so she could definitely relate in a lot of ways, and he actually you know leaned on his wife quite a bit on ways to you know guide me and mentor me as, uh, you know, going into my civilian career. So that definitely worked in my benefit to have that. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's awesome, actually. 
So for your job, are you in charge of people, or did you kind of work up to that? Initially, no. So I was a, a sales engineer, and I actually covered a territory. So it's that was also a really interesting transition because it, was a, it wasn't really a tangible thing, whereas you're in charge of people. It's uh, just like an area. And, you know, it's all numbers and, you know, hitting quotas and, and uh, you know, things like that because it's, it's sales. That's, that's what I do now. Right. And and now I manage an account, and it's one of our largest global accounts. It's General Electric. It's a you know well-known household name, right? Yeah. And uh, but I I manage it on the national side, and so it's even though there's no people I'm in charge of necessarily, I'm still an advocate for my customer, for my account, and I'm an advocate for my company. And it's really challenging because, of course, my companies who signs my checks, right? But it's my customer who makes sure those checks can get signed. So it's it's really challenging not to get into this like Stockholm type <laughs> mentality. Yeah. Okay, yes, who exactly. Well my you know, who's in charge really? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And start to like kinda, you know, get closer with them and who's writing the checks, right? I mean that's kinda who yeah. we uh who we want to cater to. Mhm. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you like the job so far? It sounds like you're uh, you're doing well with it. I I love it. So uh, just, you know, the complexities of it and, like, the different challenges that come with it is, is really great. Um, but it's, uh, you know, even though, like, I, I made the joke earlier that I'm in a job where my adversaries don't want to kill me, that level of stress isn't, isn't there. Uh, you know, it's not like I'm worried about life or death situations or if there's a decision that I make, it's not going to – you know, trickle down to where someone could be, you know, potentially lose life or limb. Um, you know, for example, you were an AT for a while, so, you know, you have to be smart to work on aircraft because if you're not, people could die. So it's pretty much that simple. Right. Whereas, you know, now I don't, I don't have those type of decisions hovering over me, but it's a different kind of stress. It's still the gravity of decisions really – can weigh down on you because even though it's not life or death, it's like, well, this is a, you know, a $7.5 million project. So <laughs> exactly. Decision. Well, you kind of wrapping it back around to the 17 year old that went into the military that had something to prove, you know, that's, that's always kind of been a mindset that I've had and it's driven me so much in my life. So when it comes to the work that I do now uh, as a civilian and as a veteran, you know, there's still a product to deliver. You know, I still have to, uh, for lack of a better phrase, you know, look good and perform well. And that's that's never going to end. So it is a different type of stress. You know, nobody's going to die in any of these situations. But, you know, I can still – my reputation can go to crap pretty quickly if I'm not careful. So it absolutely is a different kind of stress. And I don't have anything like $7.5 million on the line, you know. Like my deal is, is totally uh, much more tame than what you've got. So does that stress, do you find the stress getting to you? Do you find it uh, becoming overwhelming? Um, anything that maybe kind of trickles up that you're like, wow, like, I maybe should deal with that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it definitely does get get overwhelming. And where, you know, of course, I'll need, like, a mental break, but that's also one of the luxuries of being a civilian is that, you know, you can take that, that mental break. You do get vacation time um, to, to do that. So it's, uh, yeah, like I said, it's just, it's just a different 
kind of stress. It's not that it's worse or better. It's just very different. Yeah, absolutely. Did you feel like your time in the service uh, helps you to prepare for this job? Are there things you kind of see yourself, you know, naturally doing or that other people don't do that you attribute to, you know, being 10 years in the Marines? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, uh, you know, perhaps the way that I approach things and, you know, maybe more direct and also my integrity is so important to me. It's because at the end of the day, if you were to, you know, strip me from my job and, you know, the material things and everything else, my name, my reputation, if I have nothing, I have and that's, at the end of the day, that's all I have. And so, you know, working on such a high level, you know, say with sales, my word is, is so important to me. And I don't know if everybody's like that, um, but that's something that I can at the end of the day say that, you know, my integrity. And I think that that was such a big Heart and so instilled, you know, of course, in the, the Marines and being a police officer, how important, like, you know, your integrity is. So I'll straight out, you know, my boss asked me something, I'll be like, hey, I don't know. And I, it's okay that I don't know, but you better believe I'll find out. I'm not going to try to, to, you know, fake the funk to, uh, to try to appease anybody. The kids may piss you off, but I don't know. And, but I will find out. So, and that's one of the things that I, I think I really have pulled through yeah. this, this job and that I think is appreciated. Oh, yeah. I mean, integrity is huge. And, you know, self full disclosure, you know, I've had many integrity violations um, in my life. And it's, it's very humbling. It's very embarrassing. And, you know, it just – people look at you differently. You know, they don't want to trust you. And it's like, hey, look, I'm just, I'm just me. Is this something you kind of had, like – growing up, is this something that's just part of who you are, or did that develop over time? Well, with the integrity? Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe a little bit of both, because I mean, we've, we've all, we've all lied. I'd be a liar if I said I, I've never lied. And, uh, and yeah, it, it is, it is embarrassing. It's just like, you know, uh, if I'm not a good liar, and I have no desire to be more elusive, then I'll just tell the truth. It'll be, it'll be easier for everybody. So much easier. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that uh, you know, there's you know, there's a there's a number of things that can be attributed to that. So but I think it's just like kind of a learning experience and then with some you know, and things where my integrity's been checked, I was like, Whew, that, that humble pie did not taste good. So let's do right. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there were times, especially for me, uh, in the teams where I just wanted to like be the guy that had the answers. And I mean it's embarrassing to talk about this, but it is it is the reality of it. So I'd be briefing pilots or this, that, and the other, and they would ask me a question. I would never say I don't know. You know, I'd kind of like dance around the issue and shuffle through stuff. But it took me a very long time to be able to sit there and just be like, you know what, I don't know, and, and that's okay. It was always such a pride deal for me. But, yeah, that's, that's absolutely huge, and especially like not having to, you know, cover up for some mistake because you weren't willing to do that. I mean, it's just a big load off your shoulders, and it's just easier to tell the truth to begin with even in situations where it looks bad for you. So I'm, I'm very much with you on that one. Yeah, well, if you were, you know, able to successfully dance around some of those questions, you might have a future in policy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, my childhood dream. You asked me what I want to be as a kid. I said, you know what, I don't know, maybe a, a diehard Republican. Who knows? <laughs> so lots of options there. Um, yeah, it's, in the end, it's like, you know, I just want to be me and, and speak my truth. So, you know, it's becoming more and more apparent how important that is as life goes on. 
So along the way, when you're basically winning at life, you do some pageants. What were the beauty pageants about? Oh, my gosh. So that was actually kind of on accident. Um, it wasn't something I was, was seeking out or really had a, a huge desire to do. Um, I had met a friend, and she was at the time uh, Mrs. New York. And that's a different uh, pageant organization than, you know, Miss America. It's uh, Miss for America or Mrs. America is this particular organization. And um, it's just an opportunity for, for women with, a, you know, in a, a different season of their life to have a platform and do better for their community. So I met her. I was like, wow, that's really cool that you do that. And then, you know, throughout my time living here in the Virginia Beach area, I became uh, friendly acquaintances with uh, the current Miss Virginia, and that's Miss Virginia for America. And, uh, you know, she is one of the most, like, uplifting people. She's actually currently a Navy officer, and she's just, like, one of the most empowering, you know, uplifting people, and she's, you know, done some great things for the veteran community and for the community here and, um, you know, all actually all around Virginia. I was like, you know what, that's, that's, that's something that I would, I'd want to be a part of because um, it's kind of interesting. So say, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm Melissa Matisse, and I want to talk to you about hiring our, our veterans. Like, oh, okay, Melissa, well, uh, be blessed on your journey, positive vibes, right? Like, that's right. really what you're going to get. It's like, hey, I'm Miss Virginia Beach for America. I'm going to be competing in Miss Virginia here in a couple months, and I'd like to talk to you about, like, hiring our heroes and, and job placement for veterans. It's like, oh, well, who, you're who? You're, you're competing for Miss Virginia? Well, how can I help you? And at first I was like, why can't I just be an independent, intelligent woman who wants to help my community? Why do I have to have a title? But now I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter what my name is. If I, if I can use this title to make a difference, it doesn't matter. Let me use this title. Let me make a difference. And so it just has changed my perspective. And, you know, I was like, you know what? I'm happy to do this. I'm happy to – I'm glad to be a part of this organization. Um, but even more, I'm, I'm glad to have a title where I can uh, do my part to make a difference. Right. Yeah, that's, that's awesome that you can, uh, you can kind of push through that title aspect. Because I get it. Like, titles are important. They mean things. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's like, what do we do with that kind of uh, status? So what do, you, what do you do now as far as, you know, you kind of giving back to the community? I read something about the Samaritan House. Yes, yes, I do a lot with the – or I was doing a lot with the Samaritan House um, before, you know, pre-COVID. And um, that's such a great organization here in the area. It's more in the Hampton Roads in the Virginia Beach area. And they do for, you know, women and children that are coming out of – abusive situations for, uh, you know, they do a lot for victims of human trafficking and uh, just just all kinds of really great things and just kind of shed the light on some really ugly situations that happen pretty much right in our own backyard and ways that we can either prevent that or be more aware so we can stop it or pull people out of that situation. Right. I mean, you got to put yourself in the mindset of one of the people that are affected by that. And to have that sort of support, to have somebody kind of pull you out of that, I mean, it's huge. It's absolutely essential. I think Houston uh, 
reading through some of the stuff that the Samaritan House covers down on, emergency housing to victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, and those at risk of losing their homes. Uh, there's a task force in Houston that's kind of been run by, I think, former Navy SEALs and former law enforcement, and they do something very similar to that. And I think that's just a great cause all around. And you also mentioned, it also mentioned that you work for the, uh, the Virginia Gentleman Foundation. I've done some, some, some work with them, and there's actually, they're raising money. Uh, they're selling this, this car. It's this, um, I can't remember what year it is. I want to say it's, it's a, I know it's a roadster, and this car is absolutely beautiful, but they're selling these tickets. I think they're like $250 a ticket. So it seems steep, but they're only selling like 300 of them. So your odds are very, very good. But all the money is going towards, um, you know, their, the organizations and associations that they support. So um, a big one that they do is for ALS, that they do a lot for that, and they also do uh, Camp Grom, which is here, and Grummet Island, which helps us for, it's an all-abilities type place. So if you have um, a family and one of the family members has, you know, some type of, you know, special physical needs or special mental needs or something, they have uh, a place where, all families can come together and be able to, to participate um, in you know, different activities, which is really amazing. That is amazing. How often, how much time do you have to, to volunteer with these organizations? You sound pretty busy. Yes, it definitely keeps me pretty, pretty spread thin. And I put a lot of value on the very little free time I have. So, you know, me, myself to these organizations is because I really want to, and I have, and I, I love being a part of it. Um, so it's not like something I'm doing like, hey, guys, like, look at me. It's because I don't have a lot of free time, and I, I want the free time I have to really be used to, to make a difference. So, um, so yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad that they want to, you know, collaborate, and we can both help each other. It's you know, definitely mutually beneficial. Has, has volunteering and being of service, has that kind of always been your thing? I mean, obviously, you went to the Marines. Um, but before that, like, was that something instilled in you growing up, or you kind of developed that along the way? Yeah, I think I maybe kind of developed that philanthropic uh, drive um, throughout. Um, you know, I, I, I know growing up, I, I, you know, everyone says that they had, like, a, you know, a harder upbringing or they were poor growing up because, relatively speaking, maybe they, did, they, didn't, they didn't know. Um, but I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas. There was a, many times I didn't have running water and uh, didn't have electricity. And I had I had about seven addresses before the time I was five. And I know that when I did my background check as a police officer at 29, I had about 39 different addresses from the time I was born. So it's a lot of bouncing around, moving around, and getting to where I am Today and even throughout my Marine Corps career, it's always been because someone else has helped me. This has not been, of course, it's been my independent drive, but I'm not siloed here. And it's definitely been because I've had like the support of others around me. So it's even a little support if I can, you know, change the course of someone's just thought process, which will then change the course of you know bigger things later for them. I, I love. I would love to be a part of that in any capacity. Yeah, I, I very much ascribe to the same kind of mindset. You know, mentoring was always big for me because I never really had a mentor growing up. You know, I had parents around, I had family around, 
and getting into sports and, you know, a variety of aspects of life. But I never really had somebody pull me aside and be like, hey, man, like, you know, kind of here's how things go. Um, so I always valued that that interaction with other people. Do you have a uh, chance to do any mentorship through these programs? Or so how, what's your role in these organizations? So currently, no, I, I don't know direct mentorship, uh, but I know that um, in the Marines I was able to, there was actually this one organization that the military or the Marines there in Quantico, they partnered with some FBI agents to mentor some elementary children who were from whether it was, you know, a broken home or um, low-income families, and we were able to, you know, be a part of that organization and mentor them. And that was just such a really rewarding experience. Um, and I think it, was, it may have been more rewarding for me than it was for the children involved because uh, I think anyone who volunteers, it's not always completely selfless. You know, it is a very rewarding thing to be able to give back. Oh, yeah, very much so. You know, there's this notion that it should be selfless, right? Like we have this unrealistic idea, and we always get a little bit out of it, but, you know, it's why we're doing it that ultimately matters. You know, I don't go into any of the volunteer stuff that I do being like, okay, like I really want to feel good coming out of this deal. It's just a natural consequence of, you know, helping other people out and contributing to something. Yeah, and I and I don't feel bad about it. I'm like, hey, if I feel better about hopefully making someone else better, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with that at all. So what's what's the uh, what's the next step for you? I saw some stuff about you're obviously interested in helping veterans. You are a veteran. Uh, something about veteran employment and what's an emphasis on mental health. What's that about? Oh, I mean, I feel like there's there's been so much around mental health. It's definitely been like less taboo and it's uh it's okay to talk about you know some mental health whether it's you know issues or just challenges and with that it's like hey like it's okay and i kind of cringe at the word hey it's a safe it's a safe space to talk um but it is good to like know that you you can be open and talk about you know some some mental issues that that you're having and especially with veterans and my focus at first was for female veterans because we have such unique challenges that our male counterparts may not always have because we are the most visible service members and the most invisible veterans. And that's because of the ratio on both sides of it. And, you know, because of that, like there are some, you know, of course, uh, challenges that come with that and that really impacts us mentally, but I want to be inclusive as well because I'm always here for my, my veteran sisters, but it's like, you know, I want to help all veterans, um, especially with, you know, the Hiring Our Heroes program. And I was able to get connected to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce with the director of fellowship there for Hiring Our Heroes. And she's actually, she's a veteran as well. And she gave me so many great resources share with other veterans, and um, and this is one of those things, I'm going to backtrack a little bit, one of the, the women I was in boot camp with, she was in my sister platoon, she does a lot with uh, the military family network, and she actually got me in contact with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and, you know, we went to boot camp together 18 years ago, and just because we were able to stay in contact, that network has now 
got me this connection where I can in turn help others. So that's where it comes back to what I said earlier with network is net worth. Yeah, definitely. That's that's actually really cool. It's amazing to see how, you know, the way we treat people, and especially, you know, early on in life, and there's nothing you're trying to get out of it. It's just, hey, I'm we're in this thing together, and we're going to make it happen. And then later on, it's like, hey, like I know this person, so on and so forth. That's just the way it works, and it's actually really cool. Yeah, it's really nice how sometimes they can come full circle or, you know, just our different paths and how sometimes they will they will intersect and, you know, we can just just really, you know, hopefully make a difference, like, within our, our communities. And for me, it's really like our veteran community that's just, um, you know, for us, since we know so many veterans, I think may seem a little bit more, more uh, saturated, but overall, if you look at it, you know, from a more of a worldly view, it's like, wow, there really aren't a lot of us. So, um, you know, it's really great to be able to, to give back in that sense. Yeah, it's, it's also interesting to, you know, to have walked the walk. You know, if you're a veteran, that means that, you know, you served. You served your country for a certain amount of time, and now you're out. So to be able to go through these situations, and I know for me, the identity thing has been huge. Like, it's, I, I don't even know if I'm still able to kind of take off that coat of, of what I did in the military. You know, that, that status was very difficult to achieve, and, you know, it cost a lot. But to kind of be in the situation now where to be able to help out other veterans and to know where you've come from, you know, it's one thing to sit across from somebody and be like, you know, thank you for your service, and that's nice. But for somebody who's actually been there and kind of gone through the stuff with you, or at least in the same circumstance, you know, it just speaks volumes. It's so easy to open up, so much easier to open up to people like that. Um, I had a question about the mental health aspect. Do you do you struggle with anything like that? And you mentioned depression previously. Um, yeah, absolutely. Definitely struggle with depression, like coming out. And um, I would be lying if I didn't say, like, even even now, like, you know, present day, that I don't have, you know, the occasional dark thoughts. And um, I think that's just uh, just a part of. I, I I'm not trying to normalize it, but I guess in a way, trying to rationalize my thinking that you know everybody kind of goes through through those moments. So it's just a matter of being. Uh, open and transparent about that so you can get that help. And so, um, you know, because we all, we all struggle at some point at, at various levels and where it's, you know, with the, you know, with the Climb for vision organization with which you and Leslie do, it's so amazing with the veteran suicide rate and, like, really shedding a light on that. And if we can be more transparent about, like, hey, we do have dark thoughts, and even though what we show, whether it's on social media or whatever appearances that you may see where it looks like, hey, we're winning at life, we're doing so great, we're these awesome veterans, like, making a difference, it's like, no, we, I struggle too. I have, you know, dark moments and where I, I need I need somebody, and I have these moments of weakness, and, and that's okay, and it's just not okay to stay there. It's okay to experience it, but just please don't say it. What do you do to get out of these situations when you start feeling yourself going kind of down? Um, well, I, I see, um, I do see a therapist regularly, which is, which is, you know, great for me. And I'm not saying that that's a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, not everybody, you know, wants to do that, and that's okay. But I would absolutely... You know, just talk to somebody. For me, that's that's what I do because I 
I realize that, you know, other people have the burdens of their lives, and I'm like, well, I don't want to burden them with my stuff, so I'll just pay somebody to burden them. <laughs> right, exactly, um, yeah. Right, but then the thing is, though, it's like, you know, I'm very fortunate to have people in my life who love and support me, and they're like, no, you can come to me anytime, and that's with anybody. And even if I if I don't know you, and I don't know your story, and I don't know your journey, um, I'm still here. And even if I don't know what to say, and I'll straight out say, hey, I don't know what to say, but I'm here. And that's so powerful. It really is, because it's very difficult to pick up that phone and make that call. And, you know, I think because it's Memorial Day and it's been the weekend and, you know, I, I'm always a little bit nostalgic, more nostalgic around this time of the year than any other time, you know, thinking about what motivated me to go in, the people that we've lost along the way, and, you know, the people we've lost afterwards. You know, it's not everybody that we lose, we lose overseas. We lose people every day in the United States, you know, the what, 20, 22 veterans a day. And I wonder, you know, why some people just don't pick up the phone. Um, but I understand how difficult it is. So for anybody that get, ever gets that call, you don't have to be, you know, Dr. Phil with all the answers. I've been on the receiving end and the one making the calls. It's just nice to talk to another human being. Um, I'm very much of the same opinion. You know, I see a therapist every week. It's one of the most important relationships in my life to have somebody that I can be totally vulnerable and honest with that knows my story. And those people are invaluable. So friends, family, therapists, like the whole thing really matters. But, yeah, it's, it's not a one-size-fit-all solution, but every little thing counts. You know, we, we kind of have this deal going on if, you're, if you have a mental health issue and, and I've got depression and anxiety. We have to fight this thing daily, you know, find that purpose, uh, overcome the boundaries, and really just reach out at the end of the day. Like, you don't have to be strong. You know, you can be weak, too. Sorry, I just went off on a total tangent there for a minute. No, I'm really glad that you did because you said something. You said, you know, struggling with depression and anxiety. And some people think that they they, they aren't the same or, like, you can't have one. Like, they're mutually exclusive. It's like, no, like, they can, they can both exist and, you know, maybe not necessarily at the same time. But you're going to, you know, when you have these moments of anxiety, you're going to be depressed because you have these anxious moments. And when you're, you know, depressed, you're going to have anxiety about being depressed. So, I mean, they definitely go hand in hand. So, and that's such a crazy, crazy struggle um, that it's, it's so hard to articulate what that, what that looks like and how that feels. So, it, it makes it that much more important to, you know, share that and share those, you know, share those moments. And, you know, you mentioned it being Memorial Day and it's, you know, people so quickly say, you know, happy Memorial Day. And I never, you know, correct somebody. I'm just like, you know what? It's it's for me, and please, I'd love to hear your side of this as well. Like for me, it's not a day of of grieving. It's more of like, you know, to be maybe be somber. But you know, if our if our brothers and sisters and arms were here with us, you know, right now, who did come back, you know, they'd be you know having a beer with us, or they'd be you know enjoying this unfortunately over commercialized holiday as well. But it's uh, but it is definitely a time to like you know of remembrance. Right. I, it's not, you don't really celebrate Memorial Day. You know, it's not like a, a celebratory cause. And, you know, for me, it's always, we've had a lot of people die, right? Like, it, depending on your community, and, and everyone's lost somebody. Um, but to be in these situations and, you know, kind of see the outcome and think about the families. So for me, it's, it's just always been difficult. You know, it's something I was exposed to when I was in the military. We, I think we hit up a memorial 
for somebody on one of the teams about every, I don't know, six months to a year, um, maybe even more frequent than that. And it's just really difficult sometimes. So, yeah, I mean, I don't correct people either. Uh, for a lot of people, I think it's just, you know, a holiday, a day off, and that's fine. Uh, but to remember that there's a lot of people out there that have really lost some close friends, you know, people that we we just learned to love. I, I learned to love the guys in my platoon, and leaving that was, was quite difficult. And at any moment, any one of them can be, you know, they could give their lives overseas. So, you know, kind of preparing for that and, and taking time to appreciate that it's the people that came before us as well. You know, th- this whole thing is, is an ongoing sacrifice and service that goes way back to the beginning of American history. So it's a it's just a somber day for me. Um, but, yeah, you know, people can do what they want. I, I think it's time to definitely keep in mind that the fight is also for the people who are still alive. So definitely take the day to respect those who have passed away. Um, but look around. You know, look around at somebody who's struggling. You know, reach out to them. Make some phone calls. I've, I've made, like, three phone calls today, you know. It's just been kind of the way my life is. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to make that on my such a down note. <laughs> no, no, but it's, 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 uh, it is really good. And it's, it's, like I said, it's a day of uh, certainly remembrance and to be a little bit more somber. Is there anybody close to you that you lost? Not in not in the military, not uh, overseas. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I'm definitely. Uh, I, I don't have that experience, and I'm, that's not. I'm, I'm glad I don't, um, because right. I I have friends who've had, um, you know, their their significant others that were you know killed in action. I've been to memorials, but it's just nobody that I directly served with, mm-hmm. and. And it's just, I mean, I can't even begin to articulate, like, you know, the, the spectrum of emotions around that. Like, it's, you know, I, I can't even begin. Yeah. No, I, I, my heart goes out to the people who, and I'm the same way. You know, I I would know guys that they, I'd see them one day, and next thing you know, I'm at the memorial. But nobody I was ever really close to. Um, but I do know a lot of guys who, they knew the people very well. So my heart definitely goes out to them. You know, I know these are there's a lot of kind of dates throughout the year that are, that are very difficult. And I think this one collectively kind of touches on a lot of people. Um, how did you meet Leslie? Oh, so she and I were actually both guests on the same podcast. And um, I was a guest in one of their earlier episodes. And uh, the host of this podcast, he was like, oh, you know, we're interviewing with this, this girl, Leslie. She's really cool. I think you would really like her. I was like, oh, cool. Like, right on. I'm all about, like, you know, fellow female veterans. And I can't, I think I was driving back from a work trip or something. And I was like, oh, let me me hear this. I saw that they posted that it had uh, just been released. So I listened to it. I'm like, this girl sounds cool as hell. (laughs) uh, They did some, like, group podcasting at the VFW. And there was a group of us that showed up. And I saw her come in because I, you know, totally low-key cyberspace doctor. And so I saw her come in. I was like, okay, I'm like, keep it cool now. Keep it cool now. I'm like, you know, keep it cool. Like, don't fangirl. She comes in. And I was like, oh, my God, did you left me? I was like, oh, I, 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 I bombed. Um, but she was so cool. I was like, hey, I'm going to, like, project my energy as hard as I can to be this person's friend. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. You try really hard to make this work. <laughs> yeah. But I, I guess it's I still do that with Leslie. <laughs> Yeah, she's she's awesome. 
Yeah, she's one of one of the most remarkable people I think I've ever met. And don't tell her I said this, but she has kind of like that natural charm that people are drawn to. And you know, she still she deals with a lot of anxiety too, but she fights it like every single day. She's just a savage. Like I can't say enough good things about her. But again, don't repeat that. I don't want her knowing this. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, we can yeah. Got to keep her. Got to keep her uh, well, right size. Right, but I actually, I, you know, I've actually just been a number of times. I've like been like, hey, let's like come out. Me and my friends are gonna go grab a drink, or we're gonna go grab dinner. Um, like, come join us, because I know that she's kind of fairly new to the area as well. Um, and so, I'm like, yeah, come join us. And she's like, yeah, maybe. And like, I wouldn't really hear much from her. And I was like, and I didn't take it personally. I was just like, well, she's busy. It's fine. And she, she finds like, hey, Mel, like, thank you so much for continuing to invite me to places that I, I suffer with this anxiety. And she was just so like open about it. And I'm like, wow, like, I appreciate like your honesty. It like took me back, uh, back a little bit because she was so, so honest about it. I'm like, wow, this chick is real. Like, I, I, I respect that on such a deeper level. So, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, she's a great, she's a great girl. And I share that sentiment. She's definitely remarkable. Yeah, Leslie's legit, and, you know, we talked about integrity earlier, and she's one of the people that has kind of the utmost – I've never seen her – I don't think I've ever heard her lie. Like, she's always been brutally honest, sometimes, you know, a little too direct, even from my face, but she always means well, and she's always, like, trying to help people out. So seeing her going through the struggle and then trying to commemorate her friend and raise awareness of veteran suicide, I mean, that's the origin story of this whole deal. So mm-hmm. I'm just grateful to support and, you know, I'm, I'm happy to support anybody's cause, anyone's charity, anyone's nonprofit, or, or just people that want to tell their story. So so what's next for you? I know you're working on uh, multi-million dollar deals. Like, what's your uh, what's your next lot in life? You know, I, I'm I'm not sure. It's, uh, I don't really have a flow chart of where life will take me next. Um, just I see an opportunity or something that is like, you know, hey, I really want to be a part of this. Um, it really just continues to either open doors or or whatever the case. But as of right now, it's just finishing my master's and uh, just seeing where that takes me. Oh, yeah. What's your master's in? So I'm completing my master's in human factors of systems engineering. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I would never choose that as a major. Too oh, yeah. <laughs> that's good with psychology. That's, that's hard enough for me. I got enough going on. Are you getting? You're, are you in grad school as well? Yes. Yep. I'm going to Pepperdine and I'm working on my master's. Should have it this year. Oh, great! That's a great school. Um, that's amazing. So in psychology? Yeah, psychology. Yeah, I picked something easy for undergrad, and then I kind of ran with it after after the military. So, I, go for the, I go for the low-hanging fruit. No, I mean that's so fascinating because actually that's why I chose human factors because I definitely want to stay in the technical realm because that's. I don't know, I just gravitate towards that for whatever reason, but the human factors aspect of it, because it really does, I just finished this class, it was human performance, limitation, and error, which is, you know, not necessarily on the, you know, psychological level, but it has so much to do with, like, people and how we operate, and, like, if we, you know, if we, if humans should adapt to technology or technology should adapt to humans, so that's kind of, like, the, the you know, direction of this, but, um, yeah, it's very involved in, you know, humans and our processes. That's really interesting. I mean, there is a lot of psychology into that, and there's an area of psychology called industrial and organizational psychology, and it's almost entirely about pretty much what you mentioned, like human factors, like what are the metrics that we want to look at for job performance? How can, how can we predict that, and then how can we amplify that? 
right? So you come down to, say, a hiring process. You have people take, you know, the Myers-Briggs personality test. You're looking at the big five personality traits. And really, like, with a high degree of accuracy, seeing, you know, where people fit in uh, for this job or not, and it becomes part of that screening process. Is that something similar with human factors? Um, I mean, I guess it could potentially get to there, but it's more, I mean, the way that I'm seeing it, because, um, I mean, I guess it's really about perception, right, um, and what you want to do and what avenue you want to take with that. But it's, uh, you know, kind of like what I alluded to about whether or not humans should adapt to technology, which I absolutely think that's how it should be. Humans should always adapt to technology as opposed to technology adapting to humans, just so there's no, um, you know, gap in that human-machine interface cohesion. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, and there's, you know, I, I, I think – Elon Musk, I think he's, I think he's from another planet, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely an alien. It's been confirmed. But, you know, like how he is, like, he has this one concept called Neuralink, and it's a company, I think it's in Northern California, um, but Neuralink is where, you know, putting a chip in your brain. If I just leave it there, you're like, that sounds terrifying. That's an awful idea. Mm. Um, but it would you know, potentially help, like, say, people who are paraplegics be more autonomous. You know, they, they wouldn't need as much help. So that would give them, you know, an opportunity to be a little bit more independent. So, but that's another thing where humans should adapt to the technology because if, if technology advances faster than humans, then, you know, we're kind of left in the dust, and what does that look like for us? Um, it, looks like, it looks like the scene on Terminator where everyone's yes. connected by the machines. That's what it's going <laughs> Um, that was actually the, the last paper that I wrote. They were talking about uh, um, autonomous operations and how much um, meaningful human control there should be. And I was like, well, let's just talk about autonomous weapon systems. I think there should be human control at all levels. <laughs> that's yeah. like, I was like, where do I start putting, like, Terminator uh, quotes in here and uh, references? <laughs> Anywhere. There's never a Anywhere. bad place to put any sort of Terminator reference. Yeah, that's actually I put the like entire like uh, first scene of of the second Terminator in that because I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna rewrite that. I'm gonna plagiarize some some Terminator and that will, you know, get the get the point across. <laughs> nice, yeah, that'll definitely sell it for sure. Yeah, I think I don't think we really have a. I think we have to adapt to technology. I don't see how it could be the other way around. Like it seems like technology is always advancing so quickly, and there's so many influences that go into it. I don't know. I don't. I don't think we really have a choice in that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the cool thing is with all the medical advancements and being able to map people's minds, you know, they can have people that, like you said, are quadriplegic and completely disabled, and yet they can control all these different aspects uh, in their house. I think it's amazing. I, I really think it's fascinating. Yeah, I think there's, like, really interesting potential, and, like, who knows what the next, you know, decade or two decades is going to look like. But, you know, this may be a little bit of a nerd coming out, but, I mean, if you really think about the advancements in technology, and speaking of Elon Musk being a uh, alien, have you thought about how much technology has advanced since Area 51? Quite a bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we found the smoking gun. There's actually a really good documentary out there. Um, it's about – I can't remember the guy's name – but he was, and he worked at Area 51, or they called it Section 2 or something like that. Bob Lazar, or Bob, yeah, Bob Lazar, amazing documentary. And he's describing all this different technology that existed then that is just now coming to the forefront. Like, we're discovering it, but it already existed. So, yeah, for sure, you know, Area 51 kicked this whole thing off. 
Yeah, and his, uh, if you haven't heard it, his podcast with Joe Rogan is really fascinating. Oh, where he, fin- he brings the uh, not a flamethrower to the uh, podcast? Oh, you know, I don't remember that part. I just remember, like, Bob Lazar talking about, like, this. Uh... Oh, I thought you were talking about Elon Musk. Oh, no. Oh, no, I did hear that one, but I heard part of that. I didn't listen to that in its entirety. But, yeah, I was talking about, like, Bob Lazar and Joe Rogan. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's definitely, that's where I heard about the uh, the documentary. It's mm-hmm. actually okay. really interesting. So do you plan on getting a Ph.D. or, like, were you calling it good at a master's? You know, I'm not sure what my – the level of um, uh, masochism is for education because, you know, honestly, if it wasn't for my GI Bill, um, I I don't know if I would even be, you know, pursuing my master's uh, because my undergrad is, um, you know, great. I had a great education, and, like, I'm so glad to the military for, you know, me being able to, to do that. There's no way. You know, my family would be able to afford that, and I'm not in crippling student debt. So, you know, thank you, Uncle Sam. But, yeah, appreciate uh, it. <laughs> but, you know, if it wasn't for the GI Bill, I honestly don't know if I would be pursuing it, to be completely honest. Um, but I, I don't want it to go to waste. It's, you know, something that I worked for and that I've earned, so I'm going to use it. So after this, after I've exhausted my GI Bill, um, I don't know, but I I'm, I have considered it. I'm like, well. Dr. Matisse sounds pretty cool. Pretty snazzy. Yeah. Like, why not? Yeah. And low-key. Go around like, making everybody call me doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, low-key, like, you know, when I get married and, you know, say it's, you know, say the last name's Jones, like, just for um, intents and purposes here. So, they're like, you know, be like, hey, Mr. and Dr. Jones. Like, oh, like, what what a sweet couple. Yeah. And it's like, uh Especially a man and a woman. I know that may be strange, but uh, I'm the doctor. Yeah, kiss, kiss the ring, peasant. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> anyways. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I really love that. What, uh, what, what other causes do you promote? You know, I'm really big on putting things in the show notes. Um, I've written down quite a bit of other organizations you've mentioned. Um, any ones you can think of that, that you really want to give a shout-out to? Um, you know, definitely, you know, the, the Hiring Our Heroes organization, and there's a, n- a number of, uh, you know, sub-organizations that kind of work under that or they collaborate with them. So, um, yeah, definitely Hiring Our Heroes. And then the Samaritan House here locally, they do a lot of amazing things for the community. And then the Virginia, Gen- Virginia Gentleman Foundation, um, all the things that they do for ALS and then for Camp Grom. And Camp Grom, they also – I failed to mention this earlier with, uh, you know, Gold Star families. You know, they do a lot with them as well, which is just, you know, fantastic. Something that, you know, we certainly hold near and dear to us. Yeah, absolutely. For people that aren't familiar, um, a Gold Star family is you've lost somebody in the service. So it's really, really great to uh, to always keep those people in mind. One of the questions I like to ask to kind of like wrap things up is it's a combination of, you know, would you do anything differently and, what advice would you give to the 17-year-old Melissa? What would you do? That is a really great question. And, you know, I, I wouldn't do anything differently because everything that's happened has certainly made me who I am. All the, you know, the, the ugly parts and all the great parts. Like, that's I am who I am because of everything. And what, you know what, the advice that I would give to, to 17-year-old Melissa, I would kind of a tough one because I feel like there's so much in, you know, the military and just being in any type of male-dominated industry. Um, 
to not normalize or rationalize things that are just otherwise unacceptable. Mm-hmm. So and just be like, hey, like beat young queen, stay woke. Like that's basically. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah, very succinct. She'd be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And an apple. What's up? I said, and and an apple. Yeah. Yeah, that's always good advice. Yeah, for sure. Well, awesome. Okay. Um, that kind of wraps it up for us. I really appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast. You know, finally got a chance to talk to you. So it's been really interesting. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And, um, you know, really quick with your background um, and – uh, what you're doing like with psychology. If you're looking for other guests, like there's this guest that I think um, you guys would probably have a really great conversation. Um, her name's uh, Caitlin Chacon, and she's an Air Force veteran, and she's actually um, she actually has her own podcast, Sierra Hotel Echo, and it's you know for female veterans and stuff. But she has a psychology background, and she's going to be pursuing her doctorate. So you guys would probably like with the mental health aspect of it. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that would be a fire conversation. We would totally nerd out. Everyone, nobody would listen, but I'd love it. Yeah, that sounds. No, I think I think a lot of people would listen actually because like she and I recently gotten closer and like some of the things that she shared and I've like listened to a couple of her her things about like you know mental health and like um just like her view on it and like especially with you know veterans of different um you know different disciplines like while they are in. I don't know. I think you two would have. I think that would be a really fascinating conversation. Wow. Well, it sounds interesting. Uh, definitely send me that contact information, and I'll hit her up. Okay, cool. Cool. Right awesome. I really will. All right. Well, thank you so much, and uh, keep in touch. All right, for sure. All right, thank you. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please read the show notes for any links or other amplifying information mentioned or used in the production of today's show. Climb 4 is a registered 501c3. To purchase merchandise, contribute donations, or to apply for hiking camping equipment, or to send us a message, please visit Climb 4 at www.climb-4.org. That's www.climb-4.org. And if you're a veteran and wish to be on the podcast, please send an email to info at climb-4.org. Once again, that's I-N-F-O at C-L-I-M-B-4.org. See you next time.